Chaos Chronicle and one grad student's quest to, I guess now, write his dissertation. So it's been a bit. It's been about six months since I have last released an episode, and a lot has happened. First, the big news is I went off to England and, you know, delved into the archives and flipped through like really old books and manuscripts and handwritten letters and tried to figure out how to read 18th century handwriting and, and you know, went some way into starting this big beast of a project of, of writing my dissertation. I also got hit by a car when I was back in California and I've been recovering for a couple months. So I think those two things together explain the absence of a podcast. But we're back, and this episode we're going to be talking about guilds. So what's important about guilds? Why should you care? Well, first, I mean, I think personally guilds are kind of cool. If you walk around an old medieval European city, uh, you know, like one of those, those ancient cobblestone street, like, creaking alleyway sort of cities like Siena or, or, or uh, uh, Antwerp or, or, or a place like that, you see the guild written on the face, on the geography of the city itself. Guilds were incredibly important to medieval cities. Uh, they built guild halls and inns. They hung guild insignia from the tops of doorways. They had processions and liveries that crossed the streets where they wore cool clothes and, and waved banners and stuff. And it was no mistake to call guilds cool. It's not something that, that is counter to their project. Part of their project was to be a machine that could make people in cities proud of what they did. And I just have an image about how this happens. Um, if you're walking around the British Museum, I, I urge you to go to one of my favorite rooms. It's the rooms with, with, with all the clocks in them. And, I mean, the clocks are just fascinating to look at. You get to see all these weird little intricate machineries, and they all have like these funny curly cues. And, and it's amazing to think that so many of them were made by hand, and tons of them were made by guilds. A lot of the most ornate and ostentatious were made as a masterpiece. Now, we usually call, you know, a masterpiece just a really, really good work of art. But in the context of the guild, the masterpiece is actually a specific kind of thing. It is a work of art or a work of craft that tells everybody else that you're good enough to be a master of your craft. You know, you spend years making it and then you show it off to everybody in the guild and they say, yeah, that's really cool. You deserve to be called a master. And so there's a number of these beautiful masterpiece clocks in the clock room. So I'm just going to take the liberty of reading out the description of one of these clocks just so you can get an experience of how ornate and wild they are. Um, hexagonal tabernacle clock, tower with 12 various dials. Metal gilt background engraved with flower sprays and scrolling foliage. Scroll and dolphin pillars to angles. Hexagonal domed base reposé with fruits and foliage in relief. Tower surmounted by two-tiered cupola with pierced panels and silver foliage plaques. Vase-shaped finials. Scroll supports. Hole surmounted by model of armillary sphere. Ladder eight-day movement driving some of the dials. Half-hour strike on two bells, gilt metal key with circular handle, pierced and engraved with foliage and bird's head. I mean, that's wild. 
I mean, the clock itself is just so incredibly detailed. It's, it's, it's entrancing to look at, and you just think of all of the time that went into it. And this is a production of the guild. It's made uh, by the uh, person trying to get his mastership in a clockmaker guild in Ausberg. Now, a second reason why we're talking about guilds is that guilds are really important at understanding the everyday life of people in medieval cities. And one of the things that we keep on coming back to in this podcast and my historical research is the importance of understanding everyday life. Lots and lots of people belong to guilds and lots of different crafts, lots of different, you know, working uh, uh, methods relied on guilds to organize them. So, you know, if you were in a medieval city, you might get your bread baked by a guild, your house and church built by a guild, your spoons made by a guild. Money was assayed and certified by guilds. Uh, you, If you were a skilled craftsman, you would probably be working in a guild. Even women had involvement in guilds. They would marry guild members. They would participate in guild feasts. They might be involved in non-craft guilds themselves. And guilds were more than just about making stuff. The earliest guilds were not craft guilds. They were most, mostly religious. They were about creating conscious communities and cities where people could try on new ways of being themselves. And so they're important for us to understand how people enjoyed themselves and how people came to be people in a world that seems a little bit different for us. And finally, and, and maybe most importantly, guilds give a demonstration of the power of organization, um, which is another one of the things that I am constantly interested in my study of history. Now, today we live in a society of really big organizations. Um, as much of uh, power as we have as a species, as much as science has, has allowed us to reshape the natural environment, as much as the prosperity of the modern world has given us a lot of stuff, we still, as individuals outside of organizations, have a very you know, reduced amount of power. If I want to go out and change the world, well, I'm just one person against these massive, you know, uh, uh, organizations of state and company uh, against you know the, the 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 Goliaths of Amazon and the White House and uh, Apple and and all of these big companies an individual doesn't seem to really matter that much and one of the big political battles that we still have is about what it means to belong to groups, what it means to actually function as a member of a, a very, very big community and, and how the, 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 the autonomy of the individual should be understood uh, against the big looming shadows of these massive conglomerations. Now, guilds, I think, give us a new kind of way to think about the society of organizations. Old unreformed socialists uh, might draw a straight line from the guild of the medieval period to the trade unions of the industrial world over to the labor movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. In all of these time periods, the old unreformed socialists would say, look, here are people organizing to get together, creating solidarity, building communities, and advancing their interests. If we want to create a juster world, we should just continue on in that work. And similarly, classical liberals held up guilds as an important thing to think with, but for very different reasons. 
for the classical liberals like Adam Smith and all of the annoying kids in your econ class, guilds were, uh, I think that the word that everybody uses is sclerotic. Guilds were old, they were creaky, they didn't change with the times and they held things back. The way that the world progressed was by smashing these old verities, cleaning up the rubbish, and letting things be free, letting the liberal world just move without the unnecessary constraints of the old world. And I think that looking at guilds are important for understanding another way of organizing ourselves. Too much today we think of organizations as just big bad bureaucracies, but guilds can show us that organizations worked in a much smaller scale. They worked in, in, in parishes and neighborhoods, communities and cities, and they remained incredibly powerful right up into the modern era. And they were organized not by some sort of abstract political commitment like things are today, not by uh, the urge to make money, not for a search of profit, but rather as some sort of way of making a community. And I think that that sort of model is, is, is missing today and, and, and very important. So before we get delved deep into actually how these guilds operated and what's interesting about them, it might be interesting to do a little snapshot historiography of how different historians have come to understand guilds uh, over the last couple hundred years. Now, remember, historiography is a very historian word, and it's, it's one of historians' favorite things. I Historiography is the history of history. So when you take a sociology class and, and they tell you in big sweeping terms about the distinction between traditional and modern life, guilds are definitely in the traditional side of the equation. Historians, at least since the time of Adam Smith, thought that guilds held back progress. Adam Smith complained that guilds, you know, stifled innovation. They, they made people do things in dumb old ways just because that's how the guild did it. And to improve things, you just swept away with the old. It's a classical liberal project in a nutshell. Once you got rid of guilds, people, you know, individuals might not be as rich, but everybody would be better off. There'd be cheaper goods, more innovation, more stuff. Uh, think of the, you know, contemporary political debates about Uber hurting taxi drivers, and it's exactly the same kind of process. We all understand that when Uber comes into an area, it smashes a potentially unfair monopoly that taxi drivers have on the public. But we also understand that it's kind of useful. It's, it's good to have Uber. I, I, I use it all the time, even though I'm kind of politically opposed to it. It's, it's certainly an innovation. It's easier. It's cheaper. But we all, you know, it, it's much worse to be an Uber driver than it is to be a taxi driver. And in this story of history, uh, there's a really compelling bit of argument. You know, the story goes that the two European nations that had the weakest guilds, England and the Netherlands, had the most precocious economic development. You know, the Industrial Revolution happened in Britain, and Britain's guilds were smashed. But there's two big critiques of this. First, uh, this, this, this view of, of what guilds are only looks at them as economic systems. It looks at them kind of like as big companies that, that fail because they're not doing the things that companies should do. 
But that misunderstands what the guild is because the idea of what a company is and what it should do is a very modern one. Guilds were more than just ways of organizing consumption and production. They were also cultural institutions. They were important politically. They were, they were ways of, of, of organizing groups of people to be able to make claims on, on their political structures, to be able to, to, to have a competition for scarce local resources. And they were ways that people used to organize the, the, the course of their lives. They were in some ways you know, anthropological things that, that helped urban artisans uh, 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 have rites of passage that marked their, their transition from one way of life to another. Now, the second big critique of this is that it kind of uses an old version of, of how the modern world actually happened. The old idea is that the Industrial Revolution was a revolution. It was, it was violent and dramatic. All of a sudden, a small number of producers in, in Northern England came up with these great ideas and just completely rewrote what it meant to be a person. But we now understand that the creation of the, the, the modern economic world was much slower, that, that economic growth over the 18th century was really steady and slow, that there wasn't this massive overturning of, 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 of the old order. And when we look at this, uh, the old order of guilds, uh, you know, really coincided with the beginnings of uh, the long uh, uh, period of economic growth that would become the, the, the Industrial Revolution. So guilds might not be as inimical to economic growth as people previously thought. So let's actually start to talk about guilds. Now, when I talk about a guild, I'm, I'm actually talking about a bunch of different things. Like if you went into a medieval European city and you said, take me to your nearest guild, they, they might not know what you were talking about. A guild is kind of a, a, a contemporary word that we use to, to talk about a, a large sort of cluster of organizations that all kind of shared a similar shape. Um, in, in Britain, uh, they might be called companies. Uh, they also might be called mysteries or fraternities or orders or sodalities. But we're talking about the same kind of thing, a voluntary association, usually urban, um, that, that had people join with an oath to do a particular kind of thing. Now, we're going to open up our story uh, with the medieval guild. Um, the big period of time for the foundation of guilds in Europe was the second half of the 13th century and the first few decades of the 14th century. This is when guilds started uh, uh, bubbling up around Europe. So the medieval guild is kind of a chimera. It's part monastery, part happy hour, part insurance agency, part family, and it became increasingly important to the cities of Europe. And I'm going to tell two uh, compatible stories about why guilds started to matter at this period of time. The first is going to be kind of materialistic and, and sociological. I'm going to be talking about the Black Death and demography. The second explanation is kind of more airy and cultural, and I'll be talking about new uh, theological understandings of, of how people could actually find salvation in the everyday world. So let's look at the materialistic explanation first, because I, I think it's, it, it's important. The background is the Black Death. Let's imagine a Europe constantly depopulated. People were just dropping like flies in urban Europe. It was, it was disturbing and it was marked. In cities that, that had the plague, people would just all suddenly 
die. Uh, this upended communities. It split up families. It scared people. But it also did some weird things economically. Uh, it drove up the price of labor because people kept on dying. It was harder to find people to do things. It made people lonely because it split up families and communities because you could wake up one morning and have all of your family dead. It forced people to make new kinds of associations, to make you know pseudo-families of the, the, the survivors who could provide the sorts of things that families once did. And it also made people move, both in fear of upcoming plagues and also because some places became depopulated and had a big demand for workers. If you were manual laborer in the Black Death and you survived, things might actually be a little bit better for you than they were beforehand if you, you know, ignore all of the people you know dying and the horrors of, 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 of dead bodies hanging out in the streets. And guilds can be seen as responses to all of these problems, to the problems of, of new prices of labor, of the problems of loneliness, of the problems of migration, because guilds were these organized structures that allowed people to advance their interests. They allowed people to create new kinds of communities and cities where they might not have already been able to create these kinds of extra-familial relations. Now, it might be important to like flesh out what these guilds did by talking about the other cultural explanations for why guilds arose. And these look at new kinds of Christian thought that privilege works in the world as an important path to salvation. And I'll admit here straight out that I'm way out of my comfort zone. I know nothing about the history of Christianity. Uh, so I'm just cribbing this from the books that I read. Uh, but it seems that in the same period that guilds were really flourishing, that there was a new emphasis on a, a ethical relationship to the world that had to be uh, uh, committed in practice. That the new ethical understanding of the Middle Ages was that to be a good Christian, you couldn't just pray or, or, or give indulgences or, or do whatever it was to be a You had to actually live an ethical life. You had to be a part of an ethical community uh, and make a community that was conducive to a real kind of live Christian ethics. From this perspective, people joined guilds as a way of imitating uh, the Christian communities in their midst, the monasteries. It was a kind of consensual parish, a, a way of creating a religious community that a lay person could join even if they were working all the time, even if they might not be uh, uh, privileged enough to join the guild, even if they had a family. And when you look at guilds, they are really often a lot like kind of semi-secular monasteries in the same way that monasteries were devoted to a patron saint. Most guilds were devoted to a patron saint in the same, you know, and often the guilds were associated explicitly with a particular monastic community. They were kind of like the, the uh, uh, farm league of the monasteries. Uh, and like the monasteries, a lot of what the guilds did was have prayers and have masses to serve the members of these guilds. So if you were a guild member, one of the benefits that you got was that your name was placed alongside all of the other guild members, living and dead, when people said a mass in the guild. And this was important for medieval people. It kept your name alive. It, it, it allowed you to get some sort of, 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 of ethical bonus from, 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 from God. 
Um, and, you know, an example of this comes from a district in Lincolnshire in the 14th century where shepherds uh, formed a guild. And they, they formed a guild not exactly so that they could all hang out together in a city drinking and singing songs. They formed a guild so that they could club their money together so that candles could be burned for them in church uh, and the host elevated for them at mass when they were off in the fields tending to their sheep. So here the formation of the guild has at its center a religious purpose, a way of, of, of creating a presence in the uh, uh, everyday uh, orders of religion that might not otherwise be possible. In similar ways, guilds often hired their own priests to say their own masses in periods of time when they might not be able to have an easily accessible parish church. But, I mean, guilds were also bodily fun things. Uh, a central aspect of the guild was the annual feast where there was, you know, of course, a, a mass where prayers would be said, but there was also drinking and singing and parades and banners and music and cool clothes. If you were a member of a guild, uh, you would not only have like a really awesome set of livery that you would get to wear in parade on your annual feast day, but you would also have banners. You might have a cool title. You would, it would be fun. And these actions of, of, of prayer and of conviviality serve to bring the members of the guild together in a kind of pseudo family. Uh, the words that guild members said to one another draw this out. I mean, a guild member would call a fellow member a brother or a sister. Uh, and in the same way that a family had an ethical obligation to help its own members, so too did the guild help its members. Another key aspect of guilds in the medieval period was charity. Um, the guild would collect money for sick or improvident members. A really important thing is that guilds helped to bury the dead. This, this doesn't seem too much of a problem to us today, but it was a, a really worrisome thing to, to people in the Middle Ages, especially after the Black Death. It was difficult sometimes to make sure that there was enough money saved somewhere so that if you died suddenly, your body might not just be thrown into a, a common pauper's grave. Instead, guilds were able to make sure that the members uh, uh, who died suddenly were given honorable, uh, righteous burials. And they also serve to, to, to give alms in cases of, of, of improvident widows and orphans. And they did cool things for the community, like building guild halls, hiring priests, building baths, paving things. The guild was a way of people improving the cities that they lived in. And interestingly, I've kind of touched on this without mentioning it, but non-craft guilds, which were the majority in the medieval period, were open to women. There were, in fact, a lot of women present in some of them. Um, in uh, Normandy, unmarried women and independent widows made up about one-fifth to one-half of membership of all guilds. That's a lot. When we have this idea of the medieval guild, we're often reading backwards from clubs and, and, and craft guilds of, of, of the early modern era, and we think of them as, as purely masculine things, but they were not. They were more like a, a, a more open public square. There were more, much more female involvement in them than we, than we think. But now let's move on to the craft guilds, which started uh, to really come into their own a little bit later, maybe the, the 16th century up until the 18th century. And, and you might have the most familiarity with the craft guilds. They might be the thing that, that sticks in your mind when you think of a guild. 
In London, which uh, I know best, the livery companies dominated the life of the square mile of the old city. Uh, if you wanted to be a citizen of the city of London, you actually had to be a member of a guild. The Lord Mayor was elected by guilds, and so too were the members of the Common Council and all of the other political bodies that actually mattered. And they were varied. There were a dozen key, you know, big dog players in the guilds, but just tons of smaller ones like the Corgwainers Company. And I, I made a list because they're, they're fun to talk about. There was the Worshipful Company of the Mercers, the Worshipful Company of the Grocers, the Drapers, the Fishmongers, the Goldsmiths, the Skinners, the Merchant Tailors, the Haberdashers, the Salters, the Ironmongers, the Vinters, the Cloth Workers, the Dyers, the Brewers, the Leather Sellers, the Pewterers, the Barbers, the Cutlers, the Bakers, the Wax Chandlers, the Tallow Chandlers, the Armorers, and brazers, the girdlers, girdlers? They make girdles, I guess. Uh, butchers, saddlers, carpenters, cordwainers who made shoes, painter stainers, couriers who made leather, uh, masons, uh, plumbers, inholders, founders, poulters, cooks, coopers, tilers, and bricklayers, bowers, and fletchers, and blacksmiths, just to name 40 of the <laughs> over 40 guilds uh, that dominated the world of London. Today, I mean, if you lived in London, there's there's guilds for uh, art students and air pilots and marketers as well, if you're, if you're curious. To understand what the Craft Guild did, let's think about how you went through the different offices of the guild. First would be apprenticeship. A young person, maybe 14, 15, 16, would bind themselves to a master who they would then live with for, you know, a, a, a distinct period of time, five years, six years, seven years, ten years, depending on the complexity of the craft itself. And during this time, this was legal servitude. If apprentices ran off, they could be brought back to their master who could then beat them and punish them. Think of it as a really long, prolonged, uh, dangerous, unfree internship. Or also think of it maybe as a period of time in university. The reason for these prolonged apprenticeships is that a lot of the actual difficulty of the craft was to gain enough tacit knowledge to do it, to make a chair or a set of armor or to trade spices required tons of tacit knowledge that was really difficult to pick up. This was a world without organized, you know, compulsory schooling. There were universities, sure, but if you went to Oxford or Cambridge, you would probably just learn how to, you know, talk Latin and Greek or you know, probably you wouldn't even learn how to speak Latin and Greek. Probably you would learn to drink with rich people and have fights. If you actually wanted to learn a trade, you had to go somewhere else. And the guild apprenticeship system was a way of transmitting and conveying the difficult tacit knowledge that it took to actually make things. The next step along this process was to become a journeyman. And a journeyman wasn't bound to a particular master, but they were not yet themselves able to take on apprenticeships or hire other journeymen. And often they would move from master to master, gaining skills in the process. One of the, I think, more picturesque uh, parts of this is to go on the tramp. We can see this a lot in Central Europe, particularly in the gifted trades and these really difficult uh, uh, high-value, long-distance, like, super-skilled trades. If you were a member of a gifted trade, a journeyman, you might, uh, you know, after you finished your apprenticeship, 
go walking from city to city. And in each city that had a, 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 your trade guild in it, there would be an inn for a journeyman. You would go into this inn, you would get by your right of being a journeyman, a, a, a hot meal and beer and room for the night and a job. They would serve as kind of like an employment agency matching you with a master who would need a journeyman for that period of time. And when you worked with this master, you would learn a new set of skills. You would figure out how people did say uh, gold making or silversmithing in this particular space. A Swiss artist, for example, who started off tramping in 1669, worked in Basel, Augsburg, Amsterdam, Basel again, uh, before returning to his native home of Zurich uh, five years later with this big book of all these drawings that he did uh, in each of the places that he went, drawing the, the cool stuff that he saw in the cities and, and more importantly, drawing the tools that the other masters used to make art. We know of this, of course, because his journal survives. Now, finally, after jumping through all of these hoops, after doing your apprenticeship and serving as a journeyman, you might save up enough money and skills to actually become a master. This would give you the right to actually employ your own journeymen and train your own apprentices. Now, now we know, of course, that, that there was lots of folks who were actually doing these trades who were not masters, people who were only journeymen who were employing journeymen or apprentices. Uh, in the case of London, the guilds only had a limited scope of, of of, of legal authority. A certain uh, number of miles outside of the walls of London, people could ply their trades without the guilds actually having much jurisdiction at all. And this meant that if you were a journeyman and you didn't want to go through all those hoops, but you still wanted to like make shoes, you could just move to the suburbs and make shoes there. But still being a master conveyed a lot of benefits. It was cool. Like, I think that this is a really important part of, of the appeal of guilds. It allowed you to participate in all of the wonderful rituals of the guild. It allowed you to be a, a, a candidate for election of major offices. It allowed you to wear cool clothes in the annual feast. It allowed you a, a, a position of honor in the urban uh, uh, tapestry. In London, for example, uh, being a member of a guild conveyed explicit political benefits. If you were a guild member, you had citizenship. It allowed people to vote in municipal elections. It gave people the ability to assume the office of Lord Mayor and all the other cool bits of local politics that, that let you carry maces in public and wear vermin. But most people didn't complete the entire course of a guild. Uh, the data suggests that about 15% of all apprentices died during their apprenticeship. A, a further 45% left their apprenticeships before their term was up. So even from the outset, about 60% of people who started off as apprentices never made it to journeyman. And, you know, we can think of, of this as a, a ever-winnowing funnel of people who actually are able to complete the various courses of uh, uh, training. This is analogous to uh, one of the most obvious contemporary guilds, which is grad school. Most grad students start off and uh, uh, most end up dropping out somewhere along the course. They might drop out with an MA, they might drop out while they're writing, they might drop out before the MA, or they might continue on to their PhD. A smaller and smaller selection of people actually uh, uh, go through each stage of training. but like the guild, this training is not 
wasted. An apprentice who just drops out does not drop out with you know, nothing to show for it. They gain certain amounts of, of technical skills. A journeyman could still do a lot of work and could still probably produce a wide variety of useful goods in the same way that somebody with an MA is still highly employable. Or at least that's what we tell ourselves. And, and even though guilds were male-dominated things, these craft guilds, there were still space for women in them. Women were incredibly important. I mean, first we have to understand that, that these workshops were not places of work like, like we think of today. You didn't walk off in the morning to your, to your workshop and, and, and then come back home in the evening to eat, eat, eat dinner. Usually the workshop and the living space were the same space. These were domestic and productive places. Uh, the apprentices would often sleep in the ground floor of the workshop and they'd been, 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 be fed in the same sort of domestic situation that the master themselves enjoyed. And so women were really central to this mode of production. They did all of the invisible domestic work that usually gets written out of history. They fed and clothed everybody. They made sure that everybody was warm and happy. They uh, probably also helped out with major bits of production themselves. And we can see the centrality of women to uh, craft guilds by some of the you know, tropey ways that apprentices could move through the cursus honororum of the guild. One of the uh, you know, big ways that people could be, go from, from apprentice to journeyman to master would be to have their master die and them to marry their master's widow and inherit the shop. This happened a lot. Another way would be to uh, uh, marry the master's daughter and inherit the shop that way. And this is something that we would see again and again in stories of uh, uh, apprentices and journeymen in, in, in urban areas. There's a great popular story that tells this in, in London. Um, it's about a real-life three-times mayor of London named Dick Whittington who lived, I think, in the 15th century. Now, Dick was from someplace that wasn't London. Uh, he was a poor apprentice, beaten and abused in the way that poor apprentices were. And one day he got really sad and decided that, you know, like a lot of apprentices, he would just quit. You know, remember, 60% of apprentices didn't make it through their apprenticeship. Uh, he got all his things in the dead of night and left the city uh, wanting to go home. And then he heard uh, the bells of Shoreditch uh, ringing, and they told him to, to, to hold, to stop, to go back. That If he stayed in London, if he did the years, he would become Lord Mayor. And he did. He went back. The story continues uh, that Dick Whittington's master was arranging a colonial ship, a ship that went over to the colonies, and he would allow his journeymen and apprentices to give their goods to sell on the ship themselves, and they would go to a profit. Poor Dick Whittington, being the you know scummy kid that he was, didn't have anything yet to sell, except for his beloved cat. And so Dick Whittington, good apprentice, handed over his cat to his master. The cat goes via ship over to this colonial place and it just turns out that it's overrun by rats and the cat dick whittington's legendary cat gets sold for an exorbitant price earning dick whittington tons and tons of money eventually his master's daughter's hand in marriage which allows dick whittington to become a master in his own right and thus he becomes lord mayor of london 
three times and establishes tons of charities and becomes like the emblem of the rags to riches story of the London craftsman. And we can see that this is an important story, not just because it was told once, but it was told over and over and over again. Looking through 18th century archives, you can see the story of Dick Whittington, you know, as much as you can see other traditional stories. It's, it's, it's really common. It's on everybody's mind. It is a, a, a map that people use to understand how to succeed in the city itself. So if guilds were so important, if people in the 18th century in London, when the Industrial Revolution was happening, came to, to, to the city thinking not that they'd be a James Watt, but a Dick Whittington, why did guilds decline? Why aren't we members of guilds now? Why do they seem to have, have, have diminished in importance, except for, you know, grad school? Now, one thing that happened is the guilds calcified. They didn't calcify in the way that is usually explained, that they were, you know, anti-innovation. Guilds were actually uh, pro-innovation. They, 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 they actively sought out ways of making their processes more efficient and better. It's just that we have a couple problems. First, you can't see the technical processes in the guilds a lot because the guilds held on tight to their secrets. They were called mysteries for a reason. You know, you couldn't go off and, 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 and order from Amazon like the, the, the guide to the cord wainers guild for dummies. No, if you wanted to learn how to be a cord wainer, you actually had to do the work with a cord wainer. And so a lot of the innovations that guilds created were obscured to us because they didn't leave records. The second reason is that the kind of innovation that guilds made is not the kind of innovation that created the Industrial Revolution. What mattered for guilds was the preservation of skilled labor. It was important for guilds to actually allow the people who worked in them to make money. And so they made innovations that made skilled labor more valuable. They didn't make innovations that were capital intensive, that relied on gigantic machines or large amounts of money because that wasn't what was important to them. But as we know from our, our study of environmental history, the key to the Industrial Revolution was a shift from labor-intensive production to energy and capital-intensive production. So guilds in some ways were, were highly innovative, but just not innovative in the right way. They missed out on the boat of the Industrial Revolution, not because they, they were sclerotic, but because the Industrial Revolution was a new way of creating innovation that privileged, you know, coal and metal more than they privileged handicrafts, skill, and individual intelligence. So how did guilds calcify? Well, one big thing is that, that, that as the populations of these cities were exploding in the 18th century, guilds roughly remained the same numerically. There were roughly the same amount of masters in London in 1800 as there were in 1700. And this meant that there were just a lot fewer places for journeymen to, 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 to accede into. Um, in the 19th century, this led to a big problem where uh, there was lots of, let's say, arrested development journeymen hanging around in London, never having even the hope of becoming a Dick Whittington and getting their own master's workshop. Instead, they would just, you know, remain unmarried, get drunk, cause trouble, and work for other masters, but, you know, not ever have a hope of, of achieving this final stage of adulthood. 
Um, it's akin to the problem that we have today uh, with history PhDs. Now, with the Guild of History, the number of masters has stayed roughly the same, uh, even though the number of students that we teach has increased, uh, and the number of grad students that get uh, given PhDs has also increased. So there's a smaller or you know stable number of, of jobs that an ever-increasingly large group of people are trying to apply to. And this has led to kind of a, a, a journeyman crisis. There are lots of history PhDs out there who are in these kind of liminal stages where they, they work in postdocs or as lecturers or as researchers, uh, positions that were once like really important part of, of, of the development of, 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 of a scholar, but are now these kind of prisons that are neither journeyman nor master, that are neither you know a student nor having a real job. And, and it sucks, it, it really hurts people. Now, another reason why guilds uh, declined was that they were supplanted by new ways of getting together. And here's where my research on clubs and societies becomes important. The big story of the energy and capital intensive development of the late 18th and early 19th centuries was that it privileged larger and larger units of organization. The guild, which was kind of like a, a buddy system where individual producers were, were roughly united and doing the same sorts of things, just couldn't compete with the factories and the combinations that would become the market way of producing things in the 19th century. And also, as transport and communications changed the geography of production and consumption, more and more people were dealing with extra or translocal uh, exchanges. The guild was, was, was very local, was city-based. There were few guilds that had powers outside of the walls of their city. But in the 18th century, people were trading over increasingly long distances. You were increasingly likely to eat food and to wear clothing that were made in places not where you lived. The Corbwiener's Good Guild, for instance, consistently complained about sheep and shoddy shoes in the 18th century that were coming down from northern manufacturers that were being sold outside of the liberties of the city of London, still within a walking distance of places where people lived, uh, out, outside of the, 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 the range of the guild's actual power. And there was a further problem because as communication increased, people's ideas of where they belonged changed as well. Uh, in the West, people expanded their lens uh, of, of allegiance from thinking of themselves as members of communities or parishes or cities to thinking about themselves as members of regions and then states and then finally nations. Guilds were creatures of a city. They were very local in particular. And as the 18th century wore on, the local in particular became supplanted by these big, massive, ghostly things that now dominate our, our, our imagination. The, the nation, the, the religion, the, the guilds didn't have that. They were, they were much smaller, much more particular. Culturally, too, people had new ways of forming communities in anonymous cities that were less you know, resource intensive than the guild. And I'm talking here about my own research in, in clubs and societies. To join a guild was fun, but it required a lot of investment. You had to not only pay subscription fees, but often serve like a seven-year apprenticeship, which was, you know, really long. It, it was really difficult. A club 
gave you the same sort of thing. It gave you a source of, of, of pleasure, comfort, companionship, and, 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 and cultural understanding in the anonymous city, but it was much easier to join. And because it was much easier to join, there were lots more of them. They were smaller, they were more evanescent, and they be could become increasingly more specialized. I mean, I made a joke about all of the different craft guilds out there from distillers to, to aircraft pilots, but the, the clubs were even more specialized. In, in, in the late 18th century in London, you could find a club for literally anything an 18th century Londoner would want to do, from learning Latin or Greek to, you know, yes, like being a member of a distiller's uh, combination to uh, having gay sex. Like every single one of those things had probably more than one club devoted to it. And there were new ways then of understanding a city and a person's place within that city. Uh, there was newspapers that expanded people's imaginations beyond just what they could learn from face-to-face -face talking that allowed them to, to picture the city as, 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 as something far larger than a guild was enmeshed in. Um, there was the rise of an understanding of a domestic home that was distinct from the dirty city outside. You know, whereas in the medieval period, a person would go to a guild to get comfort and familial understanding, in the 19th century, people went home for that. There was a domestic space that was well lit and clean and bright and comfy. That was where you retired to after your days of work or maybe to a club which had a lot of, uh, uh, borrowed from this sense of domestic interiority. You would go to both as a respite from the rest of the world. A guild was far more like the world. And in the 19th century, people liked the world separate from uh, their space of retirement. Another way to think about this is that in the 18th and 19th century, there was a distinction more between work and home. And guilds being kind of both work and home didn't exactly fit. Finally, I think the rise of the nation uh, pushed people to see their main allegiances in new ways. Uh, instead of, of being allied to the people that they saw every day or work with or uh, having some sort of consciousness of, of, of community of, 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 of the people around them, in the 19th century, certainly, there was a greater sense of allegiance with big, massive conglomerations of people. A person wasn't just a member of a Cordwainers Guild or a member of the City of London, they were a member of Great Britain. They were a British person or perhaps an English person. And in some ways then guilds lack, you know, they lost their, their claim on being able to make people. They lost their, that, that magic of, of, of allowing somebody to think that they belonged. And you know, so in other words, just to, to, to boil all that down, I don't think that guilds were killed in one gigantic swoop. I don't think that it was the sense that uh, simply because guilds no longer fit the modern world, they died out. In fact, when you look at some of the reasons why guilds were specifically destroyed, at least in Britain, part of it was that classical liberals who believed that guilds were, you know, obsolete, passed laws to make guilds obsolete. In some ways, it was the, the, the creation of the idea of the guild as traditional and old that killed it off. But then in other ways, the guilds are still around. They just have lost their importance. I've continually mentioned grad school as a guild, and I, I mean, this is true. The university is uh, one of the oldest continual organizations we have in the Western world. And in some ways, a large part of how we move through the university is marked by these 
older patterns of, of communal belonging that developed in the medieval period. So that's it, my inaugural spring 2018 first episode. I hope you liked it. I hope I wasn't too rusty. I felt really rusty. I hope it made some sort of sense. And a couple takeaways before you rush off and, and, and uh, stop doing the dishes or stop driving or whatever you're doing when you listen to podcasts. The big takeaways, I think, for me are the deep connection between the rise of whatever the guild is and demographic change. Guilds started off as a response to uh, demographic collapse, to uh, reduced population sizes and high mobility. The, the period of sclerotic guilds or, or, or stable guild uh, 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 foundation happened during a time when populations were rising and cities were becoming denser and there just weren't as many jobs to go around. Another takeaway for me personally in my research is, is that I see clubs and societies and the birth of civil society in the 18th century not as something distinct from an old world of guilds, but rather as something that is evolving from guilds. The, the, the important thing about that is that the distinctiveness in clubs and societies aren't that their organizations aren't that they're ways of people in, 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 in urban communities talking with each other. The distinctiveness is that they are smaller, more evanescent, more flexible. They have an easier price of entry and exit. Finally, I think that the big important thing about the history of guilds and about the history of civil society and about the history of clubs is that they point to new, well, no, the older ways of organizing ourselves. Today, we can all too easily think that the world is gigantic and unchangeable, but it's not. The way to change the world, however, is not to be an individual vainly pushing against the weight of the massive things out there. The way to change the world is to organize small or medium scale groups of people who are united around common goods, who create communities, who create solidarity, who have fun together, who wear fun clothes and have parties and have banners. That's the way to change the world. But today, we've kind of been declawed, or, or, or our, our organizational power has been rapidly diminished. We work in large organizations. We're members of large organizations. We've got our food and our health care and our you know, buildings from large organizations. We are masters of the large organization, but we ourselves are kind of powerless. We can't organize ourselves. And, and guilds and clubs and civil society show an alternative path. They suggest that in some ways the bureaucracy that we all too often complain about can be used to create important, small-scale, and really humane organizations. And thanks as always for listening. Um, big thanks go to Duncan Barton, who did our art, and Jonathan Lear, who did our music. If you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, send me a tweet at, at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E. T-E-A-C-H-E-R, and do all those things that you do to podcasts that you enjoy. Thanks very much.